Please be seated. Well, good morning. I send greetings to you, Christ Church from Church of the Good Shepherd, our church plant out over in Davie County in Bermuda Run. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Tom Bost. I'm the rector and senior pastor of Church of the Good Shepherd. We are the church plant of Christ Church. And so a lot of you I know and a lot of you know me. And thanks be to God, there's many of you that I've never seen before. And that means that Christ Church is growing. And it's really great to see all of you, both old and new faces. One of the great blessings of planting churches the way that we do, where we send a guy out with a group of folks just a little ways down the road, is that we can share resources, which we often do between these churches and our sister church in Greensboro. And so today I'm here to help out Keith and Dana as they've had a rough week this week, to say the least. And so it's an honor to be here to preach the word to y'all and to worship with you, uh, our, to worship our God together. If you have your Bible, uh, you'll need to turn to Mark 6, our gospel reading today. While you're doing that, uh, I'm going to pray for us. Lord, I ask that for this prayer that we just sang, that these ancient words that are always true would change me and they change us all. God, help us. Have mercy on us. Open our eyes, change our hearts, make us people who are all about you, that we would repent of all of our idols and that our worship would be only for you. Give us ears to hear your word and me a mouth to preach it and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 We're in Mark 6. In the early chapters of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' authority is on display. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's calming storms. He's raising the dead. And as a result, a larger and larger crowd starts to begin to gather around Jesus as he does this ministry around the Lake of Galilee. And as he's going from town to town... He eventually makes his way further in to Nazareth, a town about 30 miles away from the Galilee, Jesus' hometown. Now, if you've ever heard of this holiday called Christmas, you know that Jesus wasn't born in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem. And then he spent a little bit of time in Egypt, but he was mostly raised in this town called Nazareth. Nazareth was a town of such little reputation that it's barely even mentioned outside the New Testament. Uh, it is mentioned, but just barely. Uh, they think that maybe at Jesus' day there were 30 families in the vicinity of Nazareth. So think about a small town that you know of with about 30 families of people, and that's, that's about it. Jesus' trip home doesn't go very well. Let's read about it. Verse 1. He went away from there, and he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath day, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter? I always think of the irony there. I have a house that was built by this guy's hands, and now he's doing miracles with these hands? Is this not the son of Mary? The brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon are not his sisters here with us, and they took offense at him. What's interesting is that Jesus' home visit initially seems to have been well-received. He shows up, his miracles are known, and people are kind of excited enough to invite him to come and to teach at the synagogue. 
We know from Luke's gospel that he read the prophet scroll, which was a special honor, apparently, that if someone was in town and you let them read from the prophets, it was, it was an honor to give a, a traveling rabbi the chance, or any person in the town, the chance to read the prophet scroll. So initially, Jesus is well-received. But then things go south pretty quick. Uh, we know from, from Luke's gospel that it was the content of Jesus' teachings that caused the problems. But Mark is kind of the action-packed gospel. This is the action movie gospel. And so he doesn't care about the heart. He wants to know what people did. And that's the way Mark works. So Mark says, hey, this is what they did to Jesus. He cares about their response. Jesus sums up the problem in Nazareth in verse 4. He says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own household. Now, Jesus' statement here may have actually been a proverb in his day. In the Greco-Roman world, it was, it was phrased this way. Familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. And Jesus' point is this, is that sometimes... Those closest to the man speaking from God miss the benefits of his ministry. Sometimes those closest to the man of God miss the benefits of his ministry. It's at this point that I call out all the clergy wives. Since my wife is not here, I'll say, ladies. No, just. <laughs> but this is the problem in Nazareth. They thought they knew this Jesus. And he shows up and they miss the benefits of his ministry. We can see the heart of the crowd in the questions that they throw out to Jesus in this passage. There's this litany of questions that reveal what they really think about him. So we see in verse 2, the first question. Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? They're questioning, how, does he, how did he learn all this stuff? You know, it seems that Jesus beforehand didn't really do a lot of teaching in Nazareth. We don't know, but it, the fact that he starts teaching seems to shock them a little bit. It seems that maybe at his baptism of the Holy Spirit is when his ministry and his teaching really began. And so suddenly this guy that they know has no academic training shows up and is a phenomenal teacher. On top of that, we know from other passages that Jesus' teaching had, had this innate authority to it, unlike anyone else. And so... The native boy who has no training, he's just a carpenter, comes back to town and he is the best teacher they've ever heard. The best teacher anyone's ever heard. And so quite naturally they wonder, what happened? Where did this guy get this stuff? And then we see another question in the second half of verse 2. How are such mighty works done by his hands? Now it's one thing for someone from your village to go away and then to come back with the ability to teach and maybe have some new ideas. It's another thing for them to go away and then come back and do things that no human being should be able to do. To calm storms, to raise the dead, to heal people and cast out demons. And rightfully, they start to wonder, what is going on with Jesus? For my part, I think at this point, their questions are just normal human curiosity. In fact, if you're here today and you don't know what you believe about Jesus, perhaps you're investigating the claims of Christ, my hope is that at least you've asked these questions. Where did Jesus get these teachings from, this wisdom? Where did he get this power? Asking those questions can begin the journey of being a follower of Jesus. But those questions are also kind of a tipping point as well, and especially in this passage. 
Will their questioning Jesus in this way, asking who he really is, where is his power coming from, will it lead them to the truth to follow Jesus or not? Well, the following questions that they ask show a move from natural questioning to contempt and scorn of Jesus. And it reveals, these questions revealed their pride, it reveals their envy of Jesus. So the next question, verse 3, first part of that, it says, Is this not the carpenter? A brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us? You know, a carpenter in that day, we tend to think of a, a real skilled craftsman, like the guys that put together this altar or the Baptist font over the baptistry over there. Um, a carpenter in that day did similar things, but they really were more like a contractor. Uh, a carpenter was kind of your general fix-it man, and he would build your house, he would make tools so other people could build things. If, if a carpenter lived near um, the ocean, the carpenter would fix boats. It was just your general woodworking, make-stuff guy. And it was, uh, it was skilled labor, it was a good job, but it was kind of like an ordinary, average, middle-class job. Respectable, but not too high and not too low. He wasn't a shepherd, for crying out loud. He was a carpenter, middle class. So think of uh, that um, is Joe Walsh song, Ordinary Average Guys. That's what you got with Jesus as a carpenter. So they're saying, isn't this just the carpenter? Isn't this just the guy that fix our, fixes our house? And, I mean, yeah, he can fix stuff that we can't, but it's just a carpenter. And then they list Jesus' brothers and sisters. And here is when we start to see their envy and their pride. Enlisting his family ties, and we'll get to the reference to Mary in a second. They're saying, this man can't be the Messiah. I know he's teaching like a Messiah should teach. And I know he's doing miracles the Messiah should be doing. But this guy can't be the Messiah. He can't be the king of all kings. We know his brothers. His sisters are in our town. Who does he think he is putting on airs like this, thinking he's some king? He's one of us. The point is, they look at what Jesus is clearly becoming or become or is, and they envy and they will not accept him. Then things get really ugly because they start talking about his mama. Isn't this the son of Mary? No, for us, that's not an unusual phrase. But in that context, to refer to a grown man, but with a reference to his mother, as opposed to his father, was unusual. Normally, they would say, isn't that Jesus, the son of Joseph? Now, there's two ways to take this comment. One way, in, in all fairness, is that they were simply listing all of his relatives and that, that jo Joseph may have been dead and Jesus was known as Mary's son. But another way to take this comment, son of Mary, is that it is an insult, it is an insult directed at Jesus and his mother. Indeed, from an outsider's perspective, a person living in Nazareth, here come Joseph and Mary, years and years ago, with Jesus, showing up from Egypt, of all places. They're not from here. Perhaps Jesus didn't look like Joseph. Rumors start to fly. It's a crazy question. 
And it shows a jab of contempt towards Christ. The conclusion of this questioning, Mark states very bluntly in verse 3, they took offense at him. These are the people that he grew up with. Jesus, for his part, is as shocked as we are reading this passage. It says in verse 6, he marveled because of their unbelief. You know, it's interesting. This is the only time in Mark's gospel where Jesus gets shocked or surprised. The whole entire gospel of Mark. And it's at his hometown crowd. It's worth to slow down here for a second and to think about the gravity of rejecting Jesus. Jesus is the best man that ever lived. So think of the great people that you know of. Buddha, Dalai Lama, Albert Schweitzer, Socrates, Mother Teresa, your grandmother. Nothing compared to the greatness of Jesus. Just as a man, the greatest humanity, uh, the greatest of humanity in the history of the world, Jesus. To reject him is to reject the best of humanity. Jesus is also the Christ, the Messiah. This term Christ or Messiah, it means anointed one. It means chosen one. It means that Jesus is God's chosen instrument to undo all the evil in the world. And to reject him is to miss out on God's fixing plan. His plan of renewal for all of creation and for your own heart and your own soul. To reject Jesus is to reject the Messiah, is to reject the good news, is to reject all hope. But Jesus is also not just the best of humanity, the Messiah, but he's also God incarnate. To reject Jesus means to reject God and therefore to choose hell itself. So when any person or any town or any society or any village like Nazareth rejects Jesus, the gravity of the situation is a black hole of importance. And the result of this rejection of Jesus in Nazareth is just tragic. And it comes off rather subtly in this passage. In verse 5, it says that Jesus could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And at the end, it says, then he went out among the other villages. Jesus' compassion is evident here. He heals a few people. I always find a little bit of humor in this passage. It says he could do no mighty work, and yet he healed a few folks. (laughs) But the language here is meant to give us pause. He could do no mighty work there. Okay, if you know anything about theology, that should trouble you. (laughs) Can't Jesus do anything? I mean, isn't he God incarnate? You just said, Tom, you just said he was God incarnate. He can do anything he wants. And it says he could do no, any, he could do no mighty work there. Can't Jesus do anything? And that's exactly the point. Jesus can do anything he wants. But he only goes where he is wanted. The concern here in Nazareth is not that they missed some miracles, but that they missed God's kingdom. They missed God himself. And the worst thing about it is that they chose it. 
The judgment on them is that they didn't want anything to do with Jesus. And God gave them exactly what they wanted. This is a scary thing. God will give us as much of him as we want. If you're here today, and again, you're not sure what you believe about Jesus, this is a question of massive importance. Do not put it off. Find uh, Father Keith or Deacon Jesus. Talk to them. Do not leave this place today without asking some good questions and without seeking the Lord Jesus. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we must be on watch against this kind of faithless familiarity with Jesus that we see in Nazareth. Unlike them, we actually know who Jesus really is. We have a lot more information than these people did, which is shocking to think about. I mean, they watched him build houses. They grew up with him. We know more. But like them, because we know Jesus, those of us who believed in him and follow him, our familiarity with him can cause us to treat him with less honor than he deserves. So how do we know if we're doing this? What are the symptoms of a faithless familiarity with Jesus? And it's at this point, if I haven't offended you, I will now. Uh, these things, this is a list of symptoms of, of faithless familiarity. The first is token prayers. Just saying a prayer, just to say it. You know, there's no such thing as just talking to God. Because it's God you're talking to. Another symptom is, is a selective hearing from the scriptures. This is a big problem in the South, in the United States. Everyone thinks they know Jesus. But very few people have read this book. This is a perennial frustration for me as a pastor and a minister. You have a Bible written in your own language. If you don't like this one, you have 20 translations to choose from. If, uh, if you struggle with reading, and I know this is a real, a real thing, talk, talk to one of us clergy folks and find a couple of brothers and sisters and say, you know what, that priest from the other church, I'm glad he's never coming back. But he did. <laughs> he did say I should read my Bible. And challenge me to it. I think I'm going to give this a shot. Here's my advice. You can't do this on your own. One, pray. God help me. Two, find a couple of brothers and sisters to work it through and do it with you. Uh, that's the only way that I've ever been able to read through the scriptures. It's with friends. Another uh, symptom of faithless familiarity is practical deism. You know, deism is that belief that God is out there and he made everything. He wound up the clock of creation and then he's just, he's left it alone and he's watching. Like that cheesy song in the 90s, God is watching us from a distance. No, not from a distance. God sees, he's close, he's active in his creation. He is among us by his Holy Spirit now, today, in this room, in this very moment. And sometimes we get so familiar with Jesus, we forget that he's the God of the universe doing stuff in our life now. That's one other symptom. Another symptom of faithless familiarity is what uh, Father Ben calls mascot faith. Mascot faith in Jesus. And this is where we take Jesus and we divorce him from the purposes that he came for. And we make him some sort of add-on into our life. It's like, you know, I've got my work. I've got my family. I've got my church. And I've got this, you know, he's an add-on. Instead of being the Lord over all of it. 
I'm a follower of Jesus, and that changes the way I work. That changes the way I treat my family. That changes the way I treat my neighbor. And yes, I go to church and worship, and I'm a part of a body that will live forever. But it's not a mascot faith. You can't just add on. Sometimes we get so familiar with Jesus, we just think he's another thing that we do, another slot in our Franklin Covey planner. Another symptom is faithless baptism. This is a real danger for us as Anglicans because we do infant baptism uh, relatively recently. You guys did one here. <laughs> and people can get caught up in the, in the pageantry of baptism, both those of us that baptize babies and those that don't. In the midst of all that, we have to realize when, any, when anyone gets baptized, they are being given over to Christ wholly. They become Jesus's. They die and they come to a new life. It's not just a ritual that we do that's really super duper cute when we baptize babies, though it is pretty cute. Another symptom is perfunctory communion. Yet another danger for us Anglicans. We take, I, one of the things I love about our tradition is that we come to the Lord's table every single week, and we should. It's a means of grace. Jesus meets us here. But do we forget who we're meeting? And then lastly, a sign of faithless, a symptom of faithless familiarity with Jesus is that we love his gifts more than him. I was praying yesterday, looking over this sermon note, these sermon notes, and um, I won't tell you what passage, and I was reading another passage of scripture as well, and it brought up this issue of me being concerned for my family, for my wife and my kids. And Jesus... Uh, I don't often say this, but like I got this impression from God in that moment. And it was like God was saying, Tom, do you love your wife and your kids more than me? And the reality is, is that we become so familiar with Jesus, we forget he's the Lord. That he demands our love and deserves our love more than our family, more than our kids. And we can make idols out of them or idols out of our work or out of accomplishment and these other things. Christians, I know it's a long list. We need to remind ourselves of who Jesus really is. That he is who we confess him to be in the creed. Right after this sermon's over, we're all going to stand and say who Jesus really is. And we need to remember the truth and the reality of that. St. John describes him this way in the book of Revelation. John says, then I saw heaven opened. Then behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, pure and white, are following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations of the world. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the Jesus that we walk with day by day as Christians, that we pray to as we're about to pray, that we confess to believe in, that we meet at this table.
And thanks be to God, it's the same Jesus that died on the cross for our sins, that loves us dearly and holds us in his powerful hands. One of the amazing things about Christ is that though we might become cold-hearted towards him, whenever he teaches us from his word and then we turn away and we say, Jesus, I've been blind, I haven't treated you with the honor that you deserve, and we come back to him, he draws near to us. When we draw near to him. And so today, I know all of us face this issue of being so familiar with Jesus at times that we don't treat him like we should. We don't love him like we should. And the great news of the gospel is that Jesus died for that sin. And that Jesus beckons you and me to come to him today. To repent, to believe, to be cleansed, and to draw near yet again. So let our prayer be, Jesus, open my eyes that I might see you. Open our eyes, Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, please stand as we can.